Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. All right, so we have been going through the book of Acts, and we saw the very beginning um, of the book of Acts that Jesus spoke to his disciples. He gave them an encouragement, actually a command, and then a promise. He told them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit had come upon them with power. And then when that happened, they would become what? Witnesses. And so what did they do? They waited. But what did they do while they waited? They prayed. They prayed. And from the beginning of the church, we see that prayer played an important part of the church. In fact, if you recall, as we've come through this, prayer has been baked all the way through, all the way through, everything we've talked about already. So chapter 1, they pray. In praying, they choose another disciple, another apostle. Chapter 2, um, they go out and they proclaim the message of Pentecost, but immediately 3,000 souls are saved, right? And what happens? Those 3,000 souls, they continue in the apostles' doctrine and in prayer. Chapter 3 and 4, Peter and John are going to the temple at the hour of prayer, okay? So they, they've continued a little bit of their traditions. I mean, they're going to the temple at the hour of prayer to pray, but while they're there, then they see the lame man. They witness to the lame man. The lame man gets healed. They get to witness to, then to the crowd that's there. That turns the, the um, Sanhedrin off. They get arrested. Um, they're kept overnight. They're released the next day, and when they go, they go back, chapter 4, to the church, right, where they knew they would be meeting, and what does the church do as a result? They pray. And they pray specifically for boldness. And what does God do? He shakes the house. The Holy Spirit comes and empowers, shakes the house, right? And then he empowers them, and they go out with boldness, and they witness, right? So skip past chapter 5, but I think chapter 5 is probably there as well. That's the, when Ananias and Sapphira are killed because they lied, okay? I think prayer is probably baked into that, although we're not specifically told that. Chapter 6 we have the beginning of chapter 6 where we have the widows who weren't being um, fed, right? And so we have the first turmoil, if you would, of the church. But the elders, the apostles, at the, t- the, the apostles were the elders at the time, they came back and they, 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 summon, they, they summarized the whole problem to this. They were doing what they weren't supposed to be doing. Their function was to what? Be spending time in prayer and in the study of the word. So they got the deacons, the original deacons at the time, right? to be able to minister to the tables. And coming out of that, then, we begin to read about Stephen. And in chapter 7, we read that Stephen is is preaching to the crowd. They don't like what he says, right? And so they stone him. But in the midst of him being stoned, Peter's what? Praying. Isn't that kind of cool? Prayer is baked in to all the believers into the church. We get into chapter 8, then. Philip goes to Samaria, right? And he's witnessing to them at Samaria. We don't read about prayer right there, but we do read about prayer when Peter and James, Peter and James, Peter and John come from Jerusalem to find out if what they heard about what was going on in Samaria was actually true. They find that it's true, and what do they do? They pray, and they lay hands on them, okay? And so prayer is all baked through that. We go into chapter 9, okay? And that's all about the conversion of Saul, who was the persecutor, right? And so as he's going to Damascus, right, Jesus comes and he 
smacks him. It's kind of prayer at that moment. It's not really intentional prayer at that moment, but he's talking to Jesus. Okay, Jesus is kind of talking to him at that moment. But Jesus tells him to go into Damascus, right? And so when he goes into Damascus, what does is, what is Paul begin to do? What's he doing in Damascus? Praying. He's fasting and praying, okay? And at the same time, somebody else, we're told, is praying. Who is that? Ananias. Because Ananias is praying, and in his prayer, he sees a vision of Jesus, and Jesus tells him that he's supposed to go talk to Paul, and he's gonna, or Saul, and he's gonna, because Saul is over there praying, and so he needs to go talk to him because he sees in a vision this guy named Ananias coming to heal him, okay? We go into chapter 10. And we see Cornelius right off the bat. Cornelius is the Roman centurion. And the Roman centurion is, is, has an angel sent to him when? While he was praying. And, and Yahweh, God, speaks to him through the angel, right? And says that God has seen your prayers and your alms, okay? And so he's come to you, and he wants you to send for people, send for Peter, who's going to be saying, Simon, surnamed Peter, you know, who's going to be staying at the house of Simon the Tanner, and so send for him, and they go to Simon the Tanner's house, and, and when they're going to find him, where's Peter? He's up on the roof of the house. What's he doing? Praying. Praying. Isn't it kind of cold? All the way through here, we got this prayer, 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 prayer. Then we come into chapter 12 last week, okay, again, and we see that the church is praying, okay? What happened in chapter 12? That was last week. What do we see? Peter was what? He was, he was in prison, okay? Herod was trying to make kudos with the people, right? So he kills James. He puts Peter, Peter in prison, right? While Peter is in prison, what's the church doing? Praying. praying. Remember, we talked about it. They probably praying for days because this is during the, the feast of unleavened bread, okay? And so in their prayers were being answered. So prayer, 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 all the way through. And we can talk about how the church is expanding at the same time, right? Because it went from Jerusalem and all Judea, just as Jesus said in Acts 1.8. It goes from Jerusalem to all Judea, into Samaria, and then it begins to go into the uttermost part of the, the world, right? And so we see Philip going down to the, the eunuch. We see Peter going down into Caesarea. We then see the fact that Barnabas goes to Antioch, right, to hear about what's going on there. And then from Antioch, he goes to find who? When he leaves Antioch, who's he going to find? Saul, yeah, Paul, Saul. At this point, he's still Saul. Saul of Tarsus. We'll talk about that in a moment, right? And he goes, gets to find Saul, and he brings him back, and they spend a year teaching the, the, the people of, of Antioch. While they're there, Agabus comes from Jerusalem, who's a prophet, right? Okay, and so Agabus declares that there's going to be a famine throughout all the world. It's going to be especially bad in Judea, okay? And so the, the people at that moment make a decision to do what? Take up a collection and send help to, to the church of Jerusalem. Kind of cool, right? So we've got this wonderful thing that's going on. And last week, then, we take the, that hiatus because they take the gift to Jerusalem, right? And we see what went on while they were there with Peter and in the prison and that kind of stuff, okay? Today, then, we want to come back, then, to Antioch, okay? There's Antioch right there. This church of Antioch, because this church of Antioch is very critical. Just as the church of Jerusalem was very critical because that's where God began the work. It's going to be the church of Antioch where God now chooses to expand the work. And we're going to find out that prayer was a critical part of what we refer to as missions. It's really in Antioch where we see the beginning of what we refer to as missions. It happens 
kind of coming from Jerusalem. But from Jerusalem, there are more being going forth. Why? Why, why did persecution. persecution? Right. They were kind of hanging out until they were persecuted. Then they went out and they're spreading seeds as they go out. So Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas and then Saul teach the people in Antioch. And while they're teaching people in Antioch, they go, they give the gift, they come back. And pick, we pick it up now in chapter 12, verse 25. Okay, we're only going to be reading five verses today. And yes, I can speak for many hours on five verses. Been here long enough, you know it. Okay, and I, I took it that testimony time was was short today, so that I had more time. Just want you to know that. Anyway, so I'm sitting there going, "Yes, Lord, you're saying I need to preach a long time." I'm joking, I'm joking, but that's what I, I was praying for. That I don't know. I always trust the Lord; He's going to give me whatever time I need. All right, so we're going to p- go to chapter 12, pick it up at verse 25. Okay, and it says, "And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they." also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. We'll talk about him in a few weeks from now. In Barnabas, in, now in the church that was at Antioch, there was certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Nazir, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So as we look at this passage, and it, again, just a short passage, but I want to, there is so much. <laughs> That's why we're only spending this, we're, we're going to spend this entire time on this, just these four or five verses, okay? There is so much in this passage that's going on that I think it's important for the modern-day church to think about, okay? Because we kind of do things the way we do things. And I think we need to get back to uh, the previous church I pastored. I didn't start it, right? But um, Pastor Woody, when they started it, their motto was, back to biblical basics. And I like the statement. Because there are times when we have to get back to the basics. So what was going on in this church in the midst of um, this um, beginning of missions. Well, the title is Serving the Lord. Because in a sense, as a whole, as I read this, that's what they're doing. They're serving the Lord. So what's the context? Well, the first thing we're told about is the leadership. The leadership of the church. And the first thing I want you to note is the diversity of the leadership. This is really kind of cool. So it's one of those things you just kind of read over because it's names, right? It's kind of like going through Chronicles or whatever. It's kind of like names, names, names. But stop and think of the names for a moment. This is a really cool group of guys. Okay, the first guy you got is Barnabas, okay? Now, who's Barnabas? Who is he? Where is he from? Anybody know? Cyprus. I have it right on here. There he is. He's from Cyprus, right there, okay? What else do you know about him, biblically? I have a verse there that you can go back and look at. Okay, he's the one who stood beside Saul. That's a little further on in the story, but that's exactly right. He's the guy who kind of come along Saul, um, in that moment, befriended him, okay? And we're going to see, actually, I think he's his mentor, okay? So a lot of, even Pauline writing, I think it's very Barnabasian. I made that word up. Anyways, you, you can use it. Use it three times, it'll get in the dictionary. Barnabasian, okay? So, um, so what else do we know about him, though? There's some critical things about Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement. But what is he? He is something that you can call that's very important, specifically to the Jews. 
He was a Levite. Hmm. Go check it out. He was a Levite. He was a Levite from Cyprus. And it was Barnabas that recorded that sold the land. That's an example to the assembly. And brought the proceeds. All the proceeds. That's what brought Ananias and Sapphira into the, hey, we want to do this and get attention too. Okay? So Barnabas is, 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 is one of the first really sold out guys for Jesus. Okay? I want you to think about it. So he's a Levite. Okay? So he's religious. He understands the law. He's probably a little bit learned. Okay? And so that's who he is. Simeon. Also referred to as what? He called what? What was he called? Niger. Okay? Niger, usual how we might say, but it's Niger. Okay? It is, it is a Latin term, and it means black. That's what it means. And so it's commonly believed that he was called that because he probably was that. And so you can see I have him down here with an arrow. He was probably African. I don't know if he was from Ethiopia. The Latin have a term for Ethiopia. So if he was Ethiopian, I think he had been referred to as Ethiopian. Okay? But what we might refer to today as Sudanese or something like that, I don't know. But we got a black man. Okay? That's there. I don't know what, how you think about that. But we kind of struggle with that in modern era. But there's no struggles. In the early church, it was a very diverse group. Okay? Who's the next guy you got? Lucius. Lucius is from where? Cyrene. It's down here on the Libyan coast, what we refer to as Libya. Another guy from Africa. Now, he probably was Arab. Down in this area is where Carthage and such would come be at, okay? And if you know your history at all, the people of Carthage actually came from Tyre and Sidon, okay? When, um, when Alexander the Great was, was becoming somebody... They, the leaders of Tyre fled because um, Tyre was destroyed. It's a fun thing. We went through that when we went through Ezekiel and stuff like that. Um, just a real fun thing. Anyways, but the leaders fled, and they wound up landing over here in North Africa. Okay. So there's a possibility. He, he could either be um, Tyrrhenian, if you would, or he could have been, um, uh, if he was from the descendant of that, but he could or been African. Anyways, the point is he's still what? Different than the other two. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Then you've got Menaean. Who's Menaean? Well, it tells you in the passage. Who is he? He, he <laughs> a classmate of Herod. Not probably, but I think it's more that he was brought up in his household. And so that he was actually, he was in that crowd. So this is Herod Antipas. Remember, we talked last week from Herod, and we talked about Herod Agrippa, and we talked about all the intrigues that are there, and we didn't really go into it, but this is Herod Antipas that is being referred to, not Herod Philip. Herod Philip was um, over the, what we would say, the western edge of Galilee. He was the, 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 Herod Antipas was the one who stole Herod Philip's wife, Herodias. This is the one who actually beheaded John the Baptist. Menaean was brought up in his household. Kind of fun, huh? He, he knows the in crowd. He's part of that political um, grouping there, okay? We don't think about it. You just read through this thing. I mean, it's what a diverse group we got going on here, okay? You got the Levite. You got the African. You got the Arab or whoever he is from that perspective, right? Could be just a businessman from that kind of angle, okay? Then you got Menaean, 
who's kind of a political figure, who has, has the in things. And then you got this other guy who was a persecutor of the church, whose name was what? Saul. Note where Saul is from? Tarsus. Who's the closest guy to Antioch? Saul. Isn't that kind of cool? It didn't take, you know, so Barnabas, he's up there in Antioch. You know, he came from Jerusalem up there to Antioch. So, so Barnabas goes from Cyprus down to Jerusalem, right? And I don't know if he was there at the, at, for the Pentecost and he got saved. That's kind of a fun thing to think about. Did his life change that much that he hung out in Jerusalem and the property that he sold was actually in Cyprus? I don't know. I can't tell you all that. But it's fun to think about all that stuff, okay? And so then he goes all the way up to Antioch because he hears what's going on and he's going to be helping them in, 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 in what's going on, right? But he knows he needs help. So he goes from there, just a hop, skip, and a jump away. But remember, he's walking. He's not driving. He didn't take a flight, right? He goes over to Tarsus, and he grabs this guy named Saul, who he had met before, who he knew was changed, and God wanted to what? Use him to reach the Gentiles. So he brings them. So you got five elders. Now, I put this on, so on that map, right? But I brought it into a Google map so we can kind of get a clue on the perspective of it, okay? That's, this is Google map current as of a couple days ago. Okay, and so this is where they're all at. So, you know, you've got, um, whoa, what do I got going on here? Why is that there? Oh, Manan, 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 yeah, yeah, makes sense. He's in Galilee. Okay, I'm thinking, oh, I missed the map up. Okay, so anyways, so this is kind of fun. So you can see the spread that's here, okay? This is Antioch right here. So you got these guys from all over the place, okay? Now, to put it in perspective, let's bring in, the United States, and Family Bible Church. You've got Chuck of Waterford. I'm sorry, say it again. Wallingford. I knew I was going to mess it up. Wallingford, Connecticut. I mean, Connecticut is so large. Anyways, but but Wallingford, okay? Then you got Bob of Pittsburgh. You got David, who only wants to declare Virginia. He doesn't want to, to, to state really where he's really from. He's all over from there. And then you got this guy named Steve, who's from... Georgia. Actually, he's technically from eastern part of Atlanta, okay? And so that, there's a big, big difference in someone who's from south Georgia and someone who's from Atlanta. I'm just saying, okay? Yeah, <laughs> Debbie, amen, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but it, who's the closest? Steve. But everybody else is what? A distance away. Isn't that kind of cool? Okay? And so I want you to know, this is on the same scale as what we just saw in Middle East. Same scale. And so, so you think of Chuck being from Wallingford and me from being from Pittsburgh. That's not so bad. I can go to Pittsburgh in a day. Okay? I can get there in nine hours if nobody's with me, you know, because I'm not making stops. I'm not making, I mean, I'm going to stop in Withville. I'm going to go potty. I'm going to get my gas. I'm going to pick up a sandwich all at the exact same time. Take me 10 minutes, and psh, I'm on the road. Family goes. It's about an 11-hour trip. So you know how that goes. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's a, it's a, it's a reality. But I can still get there in. A, a day. I can still get there in a day, though, okay? So that's not the case for those guys back in that day. I mean, those ones coming from the, the regions of Africa, that's a distance away. Now, I don't know whether they, they themselves had traveled to Antioch. I don't know how they got there. Maybe they were in Jerusalem when the, when the, when the uh, persecution occurred. But I think it's kind of interesting how God takes people and he moves them. I promise you, me being brought to Augusta, Georgia. I, the army brought me down here. 
but I know God brought me down here. I can go through the whole process where I chose Fort Gordon. It was my number one choice. I got what I chose. I chose to be Signal Corps. I chose Fort Gordon. And I got what I chose. But I only chose those things because I was getting married. I really wanted to be infantry in Germany. But my future wife said over my dead body. And I, I thought I'd, get, I'd be arrested if I killed her. So <laughs> I wasn't saved at the time. I thought, no, I didn't think about it. Anyway, <laughs> so I changed, right? Because you go to please your, your wife, right? So I became a Signal Corps. Yeah, amen. And I knew I wouldn't get Fort Ord, California. I wouldn't get Fort Lewis, Washington. I wouldn't get Fort Carson, Colorado. That's the Golden Triangle. Those are the ones that Bob really wanted to get. But Bob wouldn't get it because he was a low-life cadet, okay? And so I wouldn't get it, so I thought, wow, which one can I do? And I don't want to be going stuck to Fort Polk, Louisiana. Nothing personal about you from, from there, okay? And so, nor did I want to get stuck in, in that one in Oklahoma. Anyways, so I thought to myself, what can I put down? <laughs> what can I put down that I, I'll, I'll get? I'm a computer guy. Artificial intelligence. I'll put down Fort Gordon. Signal Corps. And I got it by my own wisdom and prowess. No, I think God worked all that stuff out in order to bring me to Augusta because it's in Augusta that I got saved. Isn't that kind of cool? And it had to be because I'm out then, and nothing against my family. My family loves the Lord now. They're saved, and it's really exciting. My brother just put out a thing. He's, he's my brother. This is too fun. He's going to be leading a group of Latinos from South America on a mission trip to Northern Africa. Isn't that kind of cool? This, the guy who rejects me for eight years because I got saved, okay, is now leading these trips. And, and he's done so many trips in South America and Central America that he's made, he has all these connections that they asked him to lead a trip to North Africa. And so then when communication is going to be on signal because the parts that he's going, he hasn't even told us where he's going to go yet because it's, it's not open. God has a wonderful way of doing things beyond our, our, and he puts people together. And I am so excited. Can I just say this? I know I've said it before, but I am so excited. Steve was the first guy who agreed to be an elder. Everybody else said, no, I'm not joining you. No, I'm just joking. And, uh, but for Steve, I, I, I praise the Lord for Steve. And then David came along. And David adds a clearly different style. David, I mean, it's just, it's so amazing to me, the stuff that he added. And as, as administrative as he is, it's nothing compared to when Chuck came in and Chuck added to, to us from his side. And, and so I could go through with their, their diversities, but each guy adds something different to the mix. So when we get together and we pray together, and we, so like in March, we're going to have a local retreat together for a couple days, and we're going to spend time in prayer, and we're going to be seeking God's face, and we're going to be asking God. It's really fun to see how this stuff plays out. But diversity, diversity is important. Can I be honest with you? This is a Bob thing. I'm really praying for more diversity in our church, and even in the group of leaders and elders. I would love to see multicultural, multi-ethnic in that diversity. Does that make sense? Because I think it's what the church is supposed to look like. That's what the early church looked like. I'm not shying away from that. The early church was multi-ethnic, was multicultural. By our sin, we have separated ourselves out. So please join with me in that. I really, I'm, I'm excited about what God's doing. Okay? And I can tell you, last fall, when um, John... Um, <sighs> speaker. Jewish. Um, speaks. 
yeah, John Mesker, thank you. When John Mesker was here, he had a guy that came with him um, that didn't come, but came because he was coming from southern Georgia. And his comment to me when he left was, and you'll know who that is, Chuck, right, because you've been meeting with him, okay? And um, his comment to me was, man, this is so exciting. I couldn't believe it. I walk in, and remember we sang Jewish songs that day too, right? And so he really has the multi-ethnic feeling. He says, and he starts talking about that this kind of people, and this kind of people, and that kind of people, and, and, and age groups, and he says, this is exciting. It is exciting, but I want more of it. It's exciting what God's doing. But pray. Pray that we would be what God wants us to be, that we can be a reflection of his body to this community and to this world. Not for our glory, but for his. Okay? So, that's that diversity of the leadership. Well, the next thing we see is that this diverse leadership was doing what? They were ministering to the Lord. Literally, it says they were ministering to the Lord. But this word, guntone, okay, big word, guntone. He's like, what's that mean, okay? Well, it means to serve as, um, as an act of worship or devotion. Now, I'm going to give you the literal definition in just a moment, but I want you to kind of figure out the literal definition from the verses, okay? So we're not going to go through every one of those verses on your sermon note sheet, but we're going to throw some of them here, okay? And so Luke 1.23 is the first time we see this word. This is Zechariah serving at the temple, okay, before John the Baptist is born, okay? So he, was, he had service in the temple. Um, Romans 13, verse 6 is the next time we see it, and it's referring to the governing authorities like over the land, okay? And it says, for because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Well, what's this very thing? Anybody know from that passage, from that context? What was the very thing that they're attending to? The people. They're watching over you. They're governing you. They're governing what is right and what is wrong, okay? And so this is important to think about, okay? So they're God's ministers, doing this thing. That's why you, a person, are supposed to be giving taxes, okay? 2 Corinthians 9, verses 12 to 14. For the administration, diakonia, that's where we get our word deacon, okay? So the service as well. You can put this word as service or ministry. There's lots of words that, that come out as ministry, if you would. Um, but the administration or ministry of this service, that's our word, okay, um, not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgiving to God, while through the proof of this ministry, diakonia, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them in all men. So you know what was going on, right? The, the, the church of Macedonia and stuff were given, were given gifts, right? And the people were rejoicing, okay? And so the giving of gifts was their what? Was their ministry, their service, okay? And, and, and the people were rejoicing. Philippians 2, 17 to 13, 30, you can see one, two, three times the word in its forms, okay? So not, if you're going to do the paint-by-numbers stuff, okay, you need to understand that it doesn't occur this many times. These are all the different forms of it. So when you go to it and you look at it, look at the verb, you got to look at the, um, the, pre, uh, the, the noun, then you got to look at the participle, okay? So there's four different uh, forms of this word that are being used, okay? But these are all the times it's being used, okay? And it's used three times here in Philippians, okay? And says, Paul says, Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely 
sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Christ Jesus. Okay? And so then he talks about sending Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Okay, and he drops down, he says, talking still about him, he says, Receive him, Epaphroditus, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service, your ministry, toward me. Okay? And then the final two that we're going to talk about, you can look at the other verses, okay, in there, I'm not trying to avoid them, just I know time-wise, okay? Um, Hebrews 1, verse 7 and verse 14 it occurs in each of those is, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels and his ministers a flame of fire, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister, diakoneo, for those who will inherit salvation? Okay? Hebrews 8, verse 1 and 2. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. If we have, we have, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not men. So, what's the point? All those things that were in purple were of God, okay? He's ministering the, the tabernacle and the temple and that kind of stuff, okay? On behalf of God, who was that minister? That was Jesus, right? But all the stuff that was in red had to do with who? Who's the stuff in red have to do with? Say again? People. People. Yeah, that's exactly right. Do you know why there's a priest? Philip. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that there are two purposes for a priest. And you are a priest. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're called to be in the priesthood of Christ. And your job is to represent God to the people and the people to God. You offer up sacrifices to God on behalf of people, and you carry the message of God to the people. That's who you are. That's what Jesus did. That's why he's a high priest. And so we go back then to this um, to the church of Antioch, literally, this term means people workers. It is, in, the, in, the, in, in the, the Greek concept, translated as a public worker, a public servant. It is someone who is working on behalf of the people. So literally, laos is people, and ergo is work. And so it's a combined word. It's a worker of the people, a worker for the people. And so their ministry, they were, were told in verse 1 that they were prophets and teachers. What was their ministering to the Lord? Ministering to people. How were they ministering to the people? Proclaiming his message. Proclaiming it faithfully. But they understood that in that position, as they were teaching the people, so Ephesians chapter 4, right? God gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to the churches. To some he gave apostles, and some evangelists, and some, oh, I missed one. Some gave apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. But all of those combined had one function. And what was their function? Say again. How, though, Curtis, you're right, serve the people. But in, in no, Ephesians 4, uh, that's okay, that's okay. Uh, in Ephesians 4, it says, and he gave gifts to men, and some he gave apostles, and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, into, it says in your version, for the work of the ministry, that's our bad translation. Bad, 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 bad. It Literally, it's ace in, in, the, in the Greek. It's into, for the perfecting of the saints, into 
the work of the ministry, into the edifying of the body of Christ. It is the entire body's job to minister to one another and to edify one another into the perfection of Christ. It's my job, the elder's job, to equip you. Do you get it? But it's not our job to do it. It is as part of the body. But it's all of our job. And when we professionalize it, as we've done in today's church, we miss it. Because everybody sits on the chairs, they sit in the pews, and they show up on Sunday morning to put in their ties so the guys, those professionals can do it more. It's not how, yeah, but it's not how it is. So their job, serving the Lord, was ministering to the people. But ministering specifically, as we already saw in Acts chapter 6, the word of God. They were prophets and teachers. Does this make sense? Kind of fun, isn't it? But in doing it, as part of their ministry to the Lord, they had great fervency because they were fasting. As they were ministering to the Lord, we're also told they were fasting before the Lord. Fasting, literally, I have it up there, technically, is giving up of something of importance or dear to you as an expression of your zeal and commitment to a cause. You can be fasting as an unbeliever. There are numerous people that do that. They go on a... On a, a, a a fast, um, like they're in prison, in um, hunger strike. strike, a hunger strike. Well, it's a fast. It's really what it is. They're going on a hunger strike, okay? Try to prove their case. They're going to die for a cause, okay? So, so it's not just a biblical concept. Other people do it. In fact, a lot of diets have you start off with a, a major fast, okay? So there's really nothing spiritual in and of itself to a fast. It's the purpose of the fast that makes it spiritual. Are, are you tracking with me? This is hard for Bob, okay? Because when Bob comes to the concept of fasting, okay, Bob has to, a lot of times I don't have breakfast. I just don't. So I'm going to fast all week. I'm going to give up breakfast. Yeah. I mean, that's like, yeah, that's like going into Lent. I'm going to give up giving up things for Lent. Did you track that one? <laughs> I grew up Lutheran, man. I, I, we got into this stuff. You know, it was like, oh, what are you giving up for Lent? Oh, I'm going to be spiritual. I'm giving up, giving up things. Yeah. So I'm going to give up smoking. Well, you don't smoke. Why? Well, yeah, so I'm going to give it up. You know, I'm going I'm to give up eating green beans. Praise God for that, huh? They're evil. They're wicked. I'm going to give them up. Fasting, then, biblically, breaks into two groups. There's a display of remorse and desire for cleansing. You've recognized the fact that you are a sinful sinner. You are sinfully a sinful sinner. Are you tracking with me? If God is holy, 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 you're what? Sinner, sinner, sinner. You get it? And in Isaiah, when he sees God high and lifted up and the, and the angels are crying out, holy, 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 he's saying what? Whoa, 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 is me. Right? And so... So there's this desire. So Daniel, Daniel is in, in, in sackcloth and fasting in Daniel chapter 9 when we see him. Confessing his sins and the sins of the people. Daniel? Daniel. Daniel. And wasn't he the guy that they threw into the lion's den because they could find no fault in him? And yet he is before God confessing his own sin and the sin of his people. Because he got it gets it. 
It's a display of fervent desire for God's intervention and leading. So that's, think of Esther. Even though God isn't necessarily spoken in the book of Esther, he's all through it, right? And so she needs to go before the king, and no one's allowed to go before the king. And so she says, well, if I perish, I perish. But before I go, I want what? I want prayer and fasting. Just lunch. Continually. Keep going. Somebody fill it in. How long? Three days. Three days. Three days of fasting. This is important. Biblically, this is an aside. Biblically, if it doesn't say day and night, they're like Ramadan fasts. Okay? They fast during the day, and they can eat at night. Okay? When it says they fasted day and night, that means that they didn't eat at all. And normally, they would potentially drink as well. So when you read about Moses, then fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he neither ate food nor drank any water. Yeah, don't, don't, yeah, you're sitting there going, it can't happen, it can't happen. I, I knew a guy, so my oldest daughter, Jessica, went to the National Spelling Bee for a couple years, okay? And while we were there, um, um, we met um, a kid who eventually won it three years later, Georgie Thumpy, and his dad was George Thumpy, and George was, was a doctor, and uh, they were believers, and George was writing a paper on that specific thing as far as the, how Moses and then how Jesus could have fasted for 40 days and 40 days. It's a very, very interesting um, topic to go into, okay? Not that one that we would encourage people to go into 40 days, 40 nights without eating or drinking because if you don't have water for seven days, I think it is, you're going to be in a world of hurt. Dehydration is going to mess with you pretty bad, okay? So, so nowhere are we ever suggesting that, okay? Unless God what? Unless God what? Tells you specifically to do it. I don't know how Moses did it. I don't know how Jesus did it. And you say, oh, he was God. He was God. He was a man in the flesh, right? And we're going to talk about that in a moment. So, but there's two these two reasons. So first of all, I'm so convinced of my sin and my remorse, and I'm asking God for cleansing. Secondly, I need his help. I need his intervention. I need his, his guidance. And I am pleading for him to guide and direct me, okay? Can I ask you for a moment? Are we at that point in the United States? Should we be at that point in the United States? If Daniel was at that point, how much further do we got to go before we're ready to confess our sins? If my people, who are called by whose name? His name. My name. If my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves. If they will confess their sin then I will what? That I will hear and I will heal their land. It's not if there's a revival by unbelievers. That's not a revival, that's a revival. That's a great awakening. What we need is a revival. We need people who are willing to go to serve the Lord. We need people who are willing to, to become uncomfortable in their lives with Jesus. We're people who are willing to open up their pocketbooks, and I'm not saying you've got to do that here, okay? but you get what I'm saying who are willing to say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto me. These guys were fasting. They're praying. They're seeking God's face for for the, the assembly. They are following 
the teaching of Jesus. Four things from the book of Matthew on, on fasting from Jesus. First of all, you have the, the example of Christ in Matthew 4, verse 2. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before his ministry. Do you think fasting was important to him? He didn't need it. He was God. Why did he do it? I think he gave us an example. I take that example to heart. Don't put me up on a pedestal at all because I fail at this a lot. And so God continually convicts me of my need to, to fast more and more and more. Okay? And, and I don't like I need to. Okay? And so, but we need to as a people to be fasting before God. Secondly, then, is the expectation of Christ. Matthew 16, part of the Sermon on the Mount. This goes on, you know, when he says, and when you pray, and when you give alms, and then when you pray, pray like this, right? And then afterwards, right on the heels of that, he says, and when you fast, twice, when you fast, in that little passage, when you fast. Here's an expectation of Jesus, that you're going to what? You're going to fast. That those who are his followers are going to fast. But then he was asked a little bit later because his disciples weren't fasting. But the disciples of John were fasting, and the, and the disciples of the, of the um, Pharisees were fasting. And so he was asked, why don't your disciples fast? So he gave them a pretty easy answer, the explanation. The bridegroom's with them. You don't fast while the bridegroom is with you. What do you do? You party. You enjoy it. You feast. But then he says, but the day would come when they will, when they would. When he left, it was time for them to what? Fast again. Seek God's face. Humble their hearts before him. And so what do we see them doing in Acts chapter 1? Without being told and go, while you're waiting, I want you to pray. He didn't tell them that, did he? He told them to what? He told them to wait. So while they waited, what did they do? They prayed. Now, they might have been fasting. Now, we're not told that specifically, so I don't want to necessarily say, oh, that's what they're doing. But they were, they were praying, and it's while they're doing that that the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They understand the importance of, of the situation, okay? Jesus gives them an exhortation to his disciples. This is after he, Peter, Peter, James, and John, and he were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus was transfigured into his glory, remember? And they came down from the mountain, and they saw the rest of the disciples being mobbed, by the crowd, they were getting ready to be stoned. For those who haven't been here for that when we went through the book of Matthew, okay, you need to understand the Jewish situation, what's going on right there. Those guys are getting ready to die. They're false prophets. Okay? The, the, the father had brought his son to cast out a demon, okay? and so they had already proclaimed that they could do these things. They've already shown, Remember, Jesus already sent them out, right, two by two. They could do all this stuff. But now all of a sudden, here they are in Caesarea Philippi. They're in, um, up in Paneus. Okay, which is the, the place of all the demons and, and, and idols up there in Mount Hermon. It's just an amazing thing. And so Jesus is not with them. They, they, this father brings his son, and they're not able to cast out the demon. Okay? And, and there's this mob that's ready to, to, to take them out. And Jesus comes walking in right at the right time. Isn't it kind of fun? He said, hey, what's going on? And they said, well, the, you know, he brought his son to, to have the demon cast out, and these guys ain't able to do anything. And then the father says to Jesus, but if you're able to do anything, because your, your followers weren't able to. Which means what? You might not be able to either. What you do, how you act, is a representation upon Jesus. Think about that. 
And so if you're able to do anything, Jesus said, it's not whether I'm able, but it's whether you believe. Bring him here to me. And he cast the demon out. But right afterwards then, the disciples, when they were apart, say to him, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we cast out the demon? Did we use the wrong terms? Were we supposed to say pocus hocus rather than hocus pocus? You laugh. But why do you say in Jesus' name at the end of your, at the end of your prayers? You're never told to do that biblically. I do it. I get it. But you're not told to do that biblically. It's supposed to be a reminder to yourself that Jesus, you're supposed to be asking for things that Jesus would be asking. But we don't do that. We think if we add, in Jesus' name I pray, that all of a sudden it's like saying hocus pocus. And every, God has to do it, baby. We just opened up the door. That's not biblical. If you think it is, come beat me up later. And we can talk about it, okay? But the whole idea of where that started was to remind you at the end of your prayer that you're supposed to be praying for things that Jesus would ask for. Not because you're, you're making him <laughs> do what you want. So he said, why can't we do it? He says, this kind only comes by prayer and fasting. The whole point is you should have already been praying and fasting. If you've been praying and fasting, you would have been spiritual enough to cast out that demon. Now, does that make you think just a little bit? It ought to make you think just a little bit. That there is something about fasting before the Lord, a pure heart before the Lord that is seeking to fast before God, that God is going to empower you spiritually in the moment. Jesus said so. That's his exhortation. I think those four passages are pretty powerful that the church should pay attention to it. People say, well, that was Jesus teaching, teaching, that was millennial teaching. He was teaching the Jews, and so that only is going to apply. That's a bunch of bunk. That's my Messiah. That's my Lord. That's God on the earth speaking to me and telling me, his follower, how I'm supposed to live and what's going to give me power in my life. And I see the leaders of the early church doing it. I think as well, they were probably thinking of Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus looks out into the, the, the fields, out of the people, and he says, the fields are white unto harvest. The problem is we're lacking what? Laborers. We're lacking laborers. There's a whole lot of people to be saved out there. Get rid of the wall, put in a big window. See the neighborhood. There's a whole lot of people out there to be, be saved. The problem is there's nobody going into the field. We want them to come here. Build a sweeter swimming pool, a better fish bowl. Let the fish jump in. It doesn't happen that way. If you're going to go fishing, you're going to go to the lake. We drove all the way to Canada to get the bass and the, and the walleye and stuff. Small, I said bass, though, right? Smallmouth bass. No, they were, they were largemouth, weren't they? Whatever, they were bass, bass and walleye. No, I'm not the big fisherman, okay? We just caught fish, lots of fish, okay? They weren't used to guys coming up and fishing all the time. So God just blessed our socks off. We had to get hundreds of fish in one week. And so I got guys who've been there, they can tell you. It's just amazing. So, but the point is, you're not going to sit at your house and say, I'm going fishing today. Maybe I need a bigger swimming pool. Maybe I need to seed my swimming pool with other bass. That's it. If I put a bass and a walleye in my swimming pool, I'll bet you the other bass and walleye will come. I'll bet you if I put lily pads in my swimming pool, those bass will come. I bet you if I do 
You get where I'm going with this one? And that's what the church does. That's what the church does. But Jesus said what? Go! Go! The problem is, there's no one going. The field's wide in the harvest. It just lacks what? Laborers. And yes, this is the passage that you ought to be afraid of. Because I think these guys, not this passage, but the passage we're going through, Acts 13, because I think these guys are fasting and they're praying and they're asking God to bring a revival. Not a revival. A great awakening. They want the gospel to be spread to all the people. So what does God do? He answers their prayer. He answers their prayer. Bam. And he brings a call. And he calls Barnabas and Saul. Two of their leaders. You can't do that to the church. The church is going to die. These are the two guys that are the primary teachers of the church. I want them to go. What's kind of fun about this, as an aside, and I can't miss my, my moment for the aside here, is the person of the Holy Spirit. Again, like Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, they want to say the Holy Spirit is just a force. Just a force. Really? So the wind spoke to the, to, to, the, to the elders. The wind blew through. And in the wind, they all heard at the same time, and they took it as a sign that the wind was calling Barnabas and Saul to the ministry. Well, then we're told in verse 4 that the, this wind, this force, did what? It sent them. It was so powerful, it put them out. It was like a tornado. They didn't have a choice. And all of a sudden, Barnabas, but it took a moment because they were able to lay hands on them before they went. Anyway, Guys, there is so much evidence for the, the person of the Holy Spirit as being part of the Godhead in God's word. Don't be afraid of it. It's all here. Isn't this kind of fun? He spoke to them orally. He spoke. And then he sent them. Pempos. Okay, he sent them. Just like Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Same word. Holy Spirit sent them. But then they were, oh, the specificity of the call, he called them by name. But then they were consecrated by the elders. Literally, it says, having fasted, prayed, and laying hands on them, they released them. It's not the same word, sent, as we see in verse 4, Pempos. It literally is to release them. They released them. Sometimes we cling to people. We cling to our kids. And we're not willing to let them go. We want more for them than, than to be a missionary. We want more for them than being a pastor. Because they're not going to make any money that way. How are they going to live? How are they going to support their kids? Do you believe God is able? Again, I can tell you story after story after story after story of when we began this church and I had no safety net. I had no other job to go to. None. The church in the very beginning, after months, Steve, right? Paid me $200 a month. That was it. But God kept meeting my needs through work that I never sought. We're bringing thousands of dollars in a check in the mail sent from Europe just when I needed it, and just when I prayed. I could go story after story. God provided dentists, orthodontists. God told me, I don't have to give you money. I promise to meet your needs. And he did. And he 
overwhelmingly showed me. Again, I've told you this, guys. If I ever deny God, beat me up, please, because I'm out of my mind. Because if there's anybody in the earth who God has revealed himself to in such amazing ways, it's me. Now, hopefully it's you too, but you get what I'm saying. I'm not taking just the corner of the market on that one. But they released them. Are you willing to release your kids? Are you willing to release me? Yeah, oh, Bob, please. <laughs> Praise God, I thought you were going there. I'm so glad. Where are you going? I'm not going anyplace. You're stuck with me right now. But the reality is, if we get to the point where we're planting the church, what if God sends me to plant the church? Are you going to stay? Or is everybody going to go to that church? Because you're stuck to me. You shouldn't be stuck to Bob. This should be all about Jesus Christ. I'm not the teacher. I hope God's using me, but the Holy Spirit is your teacher. Do you understand that? This is all about God. It's not about me. I'm just a guy. I'm going to die one day. I might die today. Don't worry, i got a good life insurance policy. Marsha's better off when I die. Not really, but you get what I'm saying. So I get that side of it. But he took Saul and Barnabas by name. And they willingly left the work that they were doing and they're watching thrive. I'm telling you, as a leader, that's a hard decision. But God, you don't understand. Who's going to take my place? Who's going to rise up? Who's going to start teaching? That's not your business. That's my business. It's not your church. But, 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 but God, it's not your business. I've been there. When I resigned from the previous church, I get it. That was a painful day. Very, very painful day. Laying it in his hands. Because it was out of my control. So, in the end, how faithful are we as a church to seek the Lord of the harvest to use us? Not to send somebody else, to send us. Are we willing to go into the harvest field? Are we willing to go as missionaries? And I'm not talking about just the kids. Kids, that's to you too, for real, okay? It's easier to go, and I'll tell you this, when I got out of the army, I had big-figured offers, okay, from computer companies because I was an artificial intelligence guy in the army, and so I had, I had potentials to go that route. My father-in-law, and I'm not picking up my father-in-law, but he wanted me to go that route, okay, take care of his daughter. I get that. But I knew if I didn't go right now, I'd never go. Because I've become accustomed to what? The money. So I get it, you older people. Not old like me people, but adults. That's a hard decision. But I promise you, coming out of then a well-paying job in the military into being a janitor, that God still provides for you. And you can never outgive God. The blessings that he has waiting for you are greater than what you have right now. But kids, it's easier when you're coming from, as, a, as, a, as a teenager into it, make the decision you want to go that route. Whether it's still working in the secular realm doing it, but your heart is already given to the Lord and you're willing to do whatever he calls for you to do. It, you may be working in a secular job, but you know, you know you're already a servant of the Lord, a minister of Christ. You are serving him and you're going to shepherd the people that he's got around you. And if he ever chooses to call you into a full-time shepherding role, he's going to do that. Okay? We, if you're interested in that, talk to me. We can talk about 
training you here. We can talk about um, doing online classes through Shepherds or Bob Jones or whatever and still training you here. Opportunities are great here to train and equip people into the, the uh, ministry. Prayer is critical in the life of the church and the believer individually. What does your personal worship and prayer life look like? Men specifically, though, how committed are you to becoming a spiritual leader in the church? Do you note in that five group of five, it's not the women. It's the men. That's the problem with the church. Male leadership. Now, praise the Lord, we have a, such a huge ratio of men that are here and, and men who love the Lord and want to train. But still, the challenge is there. Do you, you can be sitting here and you say, oh, I love to study God's word. Yeah, okay. Do you have an aspiration to be an elder in the church? Do you have an aspiration to be a, a, a person shepherding? Now, here's my, here's my take, Bob's take, and I've said this since the 1990s. In my lifetime, I expect the fact that even though we're looking at building a new building, that I still, there's in my craw, that we're going to be meeting in our houses in the days ahead. And I see every single one of you men as a shepherd in your community. You will be a pastor. And a pastor is a pastor before he's a pastor. You get it? A shepherd's a shepherd before he's a shepherd. A deacon's a deacon before he's a deacon. An elder's an elder before he's an elder. And you need to start putting that on now. Don't say, I'll do that later. No, do it now. Become prepared now to shepherd those around you. Not just say what you think, but say what God says. To be that prophet, to be that teacher, that proclaimer of God's truth to those around you. Is there then a need to change the way you think and change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for coming into my life, Lord. Calling me. Thank you for not taking no. Lord, I pray that you would draw many men to yourself. Lord, even if we become half a congregation because you're sending forth multiple people, Lord, I rejoice in you for it. Help us to win our neighbors. Help us to win our community. I know it's not us. It's you. Some water, some sow. You're the one who gives the increase. So, Lord, give the increase. And cause us to be faithful, Lord, to reach out to those that you're bringing. Lord, you're bringing a lot right now, and I just pray that we would be faithful to get out of our comfort zone and go to meet them, to go encourage them, to build up this fellowship. But then, for Father, to, to not be just comfortable here, but to go forth as you've called us to do. Here am I, Lord. Send me. In Christ's name, amen.